This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. And uh, we're going to be talking about cities and icons. And most cities have something iconic they um, want to sort of put out there and promote about themselves or at least something that they're known for. And um, you know, I think you think Sydney and bridges and beaches and Adelaide and churches and Melbourne and food and culture and music and sport. Um, and most cities, I think, around the world, you can sort of pick up something that they're promoting themselves for. Um, Dr. Dave Nichols has been hanging around with his peers in the iconic city of the Gold Coast speaking about these kinds of issues and he's uh, come back for another stint at Triple R for 2016. It's always good to see you, Dave. Hello. Uh, yeah, you too, Kalia. Hi. Hi, Dylan. Welcome back. Thank you. And um, Gold Coast is very iconic, so I think a very interesting place to have a What a crazy place that Gold Coast is. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. A planning conference in the Gold Coast. Yeah, it's like a planning conference in a planning nightmare. Let's face <laughs> it. It's, uh, it's one of those places. It's funny when you... When you, uh, a lot of people, you know, think of planning and they go, why can't it just be like kind of organic development? They think things can be overplanned. But when you go to the Gold Coast, you appreciate that an unplanned place that just grows, you know, like the proverbial topsy, it's a, it is an absolute mess. But they've got a light rail now, which we they have a light rail. They have, they've had a light rail since uh, 2014, and they, um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, I don't know, if, I don't know, if, uh, not everybody there embraces it. It's, uh, you know, it's the bane of taxi drivers' lives, et cetera, et cetera. But, and it's also, it, it kind of, it cuts through. There's a, they put up all these fences and stuff. Like retrofitting a light rail is not, um, is not a simple process. And, you know, I'm sure there are, there are all kinds of uh, problems with um, people forgetting, you know, uh, that they can't drive down that road or whatever. But um, it, uh, it looks pretty cool and, I, and it seems to be pretty functional. It's only one line at this point. Why did they put it in? I think they just had these, they had the classic problems that, you know, do you know um, Canberra's getting its light rail uh, in the next, uh, it's just been announced like officially, it's it's happening. So, you know, these kind of, and the Gold Coast is something like, I think it's like, is it the 10th biggest city in Australia? It's something weird like that. Um, something in that kind of ballpark. And these, uh, you know, mid-sized cities are realising that um, they're just, you know, the public transport is uh, is something particularly it, it ameliorates like those those problems with, for instance, those little uh, medium-sized trips that people take. You know, a little too far to walk, um, and uh, and yet you need to uh, you need to to get around in town. And uh, light rails work with those kinds of things. Also, I mean, the Gold Coast is a it's a you know by its very nature it's a, it's a long to 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 uh, to utilise a favourite phrase of mine is a long thin streak of pelican shit. So um, you know you have to get from you, you go kilometres to get from uh, various parts, and it has no centre as well, which is the other the other problem that it has. So, well, I mean, what's the history of the development of the Gold Coast? Because I, I remember as a kid going there and being mm. wowed by the hi- the high rise, and then being shocked when I couldn't see the sunset because yeah. <laughs> it was being shaded by yeah. the buildings on the beach, you know. And uh, uh, I mean, what, what's its development history? Oh, I mean, just think of every corrupt practice that you can imagine and uh, and apply it. It's uh, you know, it's been uh, it's been reined in, I think, in the last twenty or so years. But it's uh, it's nevertheless it's. It's really about. It's just one of those places that you know the lack of planning has been the the, the planning history. So that there's uh, there's been a lot of um, 
you know, get rich quick guys who've come in and in many cases have got rich quick. I mean, I'm sure there's a, there's a bit of, uh, you know, heartbreak amongst some of those uh, speculators and so on. But um, And it still has this bizarre piecemeal um, appearance where there's, you know, Fibro Cottage, you know, Queenslander, massive high-rise, empty block, uh, you know, these kinds of, you know, a really shabby thing that looks like part of a um, uh, part of something that was going to be something bigger but they never got around to doing the something bigger uh, so there's there's all of those kinds of things on the on the Gold Coast and it's you know it's a very ugly place and very unpleasant to go to it's interesting because I I had that reaction when I drove through it probably um, three or four years ago I've only yeah. kind of been through there once or twice but um, yeah. as a kid driving through you know I was really excited at seeing the theme parks and all that sort of thing um, which is you know pretty mm. pretty huge as a kid and it's almost like our kind of version of Disneyland or, or Florida but or something is it is it kind of modelled on that at all on, great on the US coast yeah yeah, it is. It is, definitely. But I think it's, like, I've been thinking about it, um, obviously, quite a bit, having spent some time there very recently. The, 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 the idea that it's kind of, you know, it's sort of a, it exemplifies what we, you know, what, well, let's, not, let's not say we, what um, a majority of people in Western civilization think of as, you know, pleasure slash excitement slash uh, slash kind of uh, you know enjoyment fulfilment whatever it's it's really uh, extraordinary in that in that way and it always has I guess or at least since the since the end of the Second World War it's always been that kind of uh, that kind of a place for a lot of people and um, you know people have wanted to retire there I guess because of the climate which you know baffles boggles my mind because I find the climate so unpleasant that I just can't wait to get out of there and you know, all the time I was there, I was going, I'm not going to whinge about this anymore because it's boring, bores me, but, you know, back here <laughs> thinking about it again and it's still... Um, some people I know really love that kind of uh, climate. But uh, it's, you know, it, it has, like, these fairly basic, you know, uh, geographical uh, advantages as far as a lot of people are concerned. So it, um, you know, it's, it's a pleasure spot and always it has been. It's fascinating to see images of it from... 30 or 40 years ago when it was a little more, I think in, uh, to a certain degree it was kind of sophisticated uh, you know, by some people's uh, measures, you know, kind of uh, sophisticated entertainment spots and, and so on, and, you know, cocktail um, uh, clubs and so on. So it was, uh, it was a kind of uh, exciting and um, uh, elite place to be for, for many people but uh, that's kind of, I think, gone by the board. It's now, um, it's a very democratic environment. So, I mean, it's right on the coast, the Gold Coast. Um, have we learnt things uh, about coastal development from the Gold Coast kind of more generally? Is that looked to as somewhere that you don't do what they did? Yes, Is that how we learn from I, it? No, I totally. I think that it's probably uh, places like that have to exist so that we look, you know, elsewhere we can go. We don't want to be a Gold Coast. I mean, it's much like, you know, the history of Melbourne's uh, uh, planning since the Second World War has been people saying we don't want Melbourne to become like Los Angeles. Well, you know, the Gold Coast f- serves a similar function. Well, I mind you, the pe- people in Brisbane uh, seem not to have learnt the lesson, and they have the Gold Coast just down the road. But um, you know, the rest of the the rest of the country, I think it's it's been a kind of a it's a measure uh, in many cases that you just don't want to go to. 
And so this this conference you were at um, mm. just at the end of January was the 13th Australasian Urban Planning History Conference, which I think uh, happens every two years. Um, and you delivered three papers on some quite eclectic topics. Do you want to talk us through what they were? Uh, yeah. Uh, I did a paper on Dogs in Space, um, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. Uh, the movie, of course. Um, I uh, And I, what I was looking at there was, uh, in large part, because the theme of the conference was icons, uh, which is a great theme and worked really well. And fa- fascinating theme to be exploring uh, on the Gold Coast where, you know, anything iconic, uh, by and large, gets knocked down for some, you know, big... Um, you know, box skyscraper um, sooner or later. But um, uh, so one of the things, a la Dogs in Space, the house that the film was um, centred around was given uh, local heritage status uh, late last year, in part, because I mean, it has its own attributes that go back to its um, building and so on, but in part because, uh, because it was featured in the movie. And um, I guess most people know it was featured in the movie, it was filmed, uh, the film was made there and a lot of the events that are depicted in the film also happened in the same house. So it's double, it's a double uh, double thing. Um, so that was the icon element. And I suppose also I, I talked a little bit about, you know, Michael Hutchins, you know, as one of the one of the actors in the film, is he an icon as well? I, I didn't go too far down that road. That was uh, that was troublesome and probably didn't matter too much to most of the. But it's also the, the sort of the, the share house type, you know, theme that the music scene it depicts all those sorts of things. And I think that I mean it says, yeah, it seems to me to say a lot about about Melbourne and uh, and I suppose what people think about Melbourne from a certain era anyway. I Yeah, it, and although, you know, that's a, it's a fascinating thing and it's something that the more I thought about it, in fact, I started thinking about it um, on the day that I was going to give the paper and I inserted a couple of things in there, the, this uh, idea of these uh, formative uh, share houses. So I was thinking, you know, the Saints in the late 70s, they had a place called Club 76 that was a, you know, a little house on Petrie Terrace where some of them lived and they, f- they shot their video there. The, uh, the victims in Perth, Kim Salmon et al. had a, um, a uh, was it Kim, Kim Salmon wasn't in The Victims, sorry, but he wrote about it. Uh, they had a place called Victim Manor, which was, you know, just this, ha- this hippie house that they uh, obliterated all traces of hippiedom and then turned it into their own squalid mess, apparently. Uh, and then, you know, you go back, all kinds of bands, often they have this kind of, we started in this, uh, this amazing share house kind of thing. So that's, um, that's interesting. I guess that... That goes back to, um, you know, they're probably using their models, weird stuff like the monkeys, you know, the monkeys all lived in the same house or, or whatever it was. It's, they're probably following those kinds of principles. Yeah, anyway. I think the first time I was introduced by, to share housing was um, through the young ones. Okay, that yeah. Sort of, you know, <laughs> yeah. that sort of <laughs> Very, you know, no, absolutely. Very <laughs> opposite. Um, yes, so I did that paper and I did one on... Um, these, by the way, were all co-authored, but let's, you know, um, I was presenting them. Um, I did one on... Um, uh, Swan Hill Pioneer Folk Museum, which uh, is a mid-60s, you know, predates Sovereign Hill uh, by um, five, six years. Sovereign Hill used it as, a, as its template, and it was one of the earliest examples of the, this notion of the living museum, uh, and uh, the well-known uh, modernist architect Roy Grounds got heavily involved in uh, the, the creation of the Swan Hill Pioneer Folk Museum, which was uh, meant to be like a major year-round attraction to Swan Hill in the days of 
this you know the motoring holiday, the family motoring holiday. So as car ownership comes up, becomes a big uh, a big thing. Um, it's uh, you know dad piles the whole family in the car and says, okay, we're going somewhere you know not too far, but far enough away that we know we're somewhere different. Well, let's go to Swan Hill and you know experience what the uh, the pioneers you know went through uh, and so on. So there's there's that, and the other one was uh, the Port Port Melbourne uh, football ground. Um, which you know I, is obviously an icon in itself. As a you know, it's been the, the location for local football in Port Melbourne for um, doing the maths here, uh, 135 years. Uh, so it's you know all in that that one place. And uh, what I was really tracing there was it was a it was another good. Um, chance to have a, a little bit, even though he's he's a bit of a paper tiger these days, but have a bit of a bash of uh, Matty Guy for his um, Fisherman's Bend project, uh, where someone rather blithely declared that the Port Melbourne football ground would just be an open recreation space. It wasn't going to be dedicated completely to football slash cricket anymore, so it wasn't going to be um, preserved and, and left pristine for um, for the football players and the cricket players to, you know... Um, uh, do their stuff on so uh, and then what I was looking at there was uh, a lot of the upset that it caused in the local community and how that uh, once again shines a light on the difference between working class Port Melbourne which is let's face it all due respect a bit of a rump these days because Port Melbourne is such a, a gentrified place and the Fisherman's Bend project is you know going to ramp that up by you know the power of 10 and uh, so we were uh, we were looking there at this um, this kind of um, uh, how the, the the threat to the Port Melbourne football ground, um, you know, uh, shines a light or uh, accentuates the, the tensions in the area. Is it is it still under threat? No, uh, apparently not. I don't think that there's been a a formal absolute declaration that it's not. But I think that the uh, election of the uh, Andrews government uh, took the pressure off. Dave, how do you select what to? study in research because you know that is like from dogs in space to Port Melbourne uh, football ground I, I'm not going to try and make the links I suppose you've no made links. the links but it's um it's interesting what um you choose to look into can I can I give you the honest answer <laughs> you do it because like in these kinds of instances some of them some of these are like the beginnings of projects that you just like you're kind of throwing it out there and you're seeing what your peers will say about the things that you put forward and if you get interesting responses or interesting ideas or you, you know it's also a little bit of a declaration of intent within the community that this is what I'm going to be looking at in the next few years that kind of stuff um, sometimes you are on funded projects where you you know you, you kind of have to triangulate between uh, your I mean, my own interests and the interests of the the project that you've been funded to do. So you you know you pick mm. uh, elements and you um, you run with them. So which is great. I mean, I have absolutely no problem with, with that. Of course, uh, it's um, you know you 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 bring your um, one brings one's skills to bear on you know a, a particular element of you know the the, the study that you've been. Uh, brought in to work on. Well, what, what, I mean, one thing, I'm oh, sorry, Dylan, um, one thing I was thinking, you know, we, we, we hear a lot of criticism now, particularly around sort of governments and policy and the like, that we don't learn from history and we keep making the same mistakes. Um, so true. And, yeah, so, I mean, I suppose maybe you hang out in the Gold Coast with um, other uh, urban planners 
talking about that that we're not learning, or, or are we oh, in some yeah. respects learning? You know, can we can we sort of start to learn from from history and improve urban environments? Well, that's an ongoing that's an ongoing uh, you know complaint, I suppose. Uh, but I guess we're all in the history field. We're all kind of you know in the history slash planning slash urban history slash whatever urban studies fields where we're pretty resigned to that. But you know, in a way, that's that's part of the appeal of history is, you know, you don't want... Uh, from a historian's point of view, it's good that people still screw things up and, and mess up and, and make mistakes because you've got something to write about uh, further down the track. Uh, if, you know, I think we're, we're all mature enough to know that you can't, you're never going to get everything right and circumstances change and so on. So um, what, what can you do? It's just um, I'm, a, uh, I'm, I'm a middle-aged man resigned to uh, the fact that I... Never, you know, was unable to fix the world, uh, even though I really, really tried for a couple of years there. It's interesting. Like, I mean, what, what you've kind of looked at in these three papers, if anything that connects them, is that um, all those icons have a cultural history and yes. there's, there's a culture that's developed around them and that's mm. why they've become iconic in some yes. ways. But when I kind of think of... of icons around the world, a lot of them in some cases seem to be kind of purpose built, perhaps with a view of attracting visitors, attracting tourists, whether it's an architectural mm. wonder like the Sydney Opera House um, and my mind kind of went to the, the Melbourne Star Ferris Wheel for example which right. has been, you know, a bit of a flop yes. <laughs> for a, for a yes. kind of central Hillary, yes. a central kind of um, city icon. Are there many other examples of that where um, cities have tried to build an icon around an architectural wonder or something where it's been a bit of a flop? A bit of a flop um, yeah, and um, there's a wonderful example. Oh, there's so many examples. There's so many wonderful examples. And you like think about Sydney's uh, monorail. You know those kinds of those kinds of things that, like the amount of which, by the way, was built before the Simpsons monorail episode. But you know, basically followed its principles uh, <laughs> uh, in advance. Uh, the so there's you know there's heaps of them, and but of course there's there's generally um, you know there has to be this huge amount of. Um, publicity in advance and all these promises made about what something's going to end up meaning um, and then it uh, once it's installed you have to kind of you know who does it benefit uh, at, at least at a, at a government level or at, you know a level of people responsible for tourism to say yeah well this thing's stiffed so um, you can never really get a, a the real story and after a while those things they, they become kind of um, uh, their own, you know, they have their own purpose and existence and their own history mm. for that matter. Um, I keep thinking of this amazing example of a, um, a building that was built in London in the late uh, 19th century, uh, supposedly to um, rival the Eiffel Tower, and they only got around to building the first platform. So it, it became this big sort of white elephant uh, out in, um, is it, uh, I think, Wimbledon? In, in London, uh, there's amazing pictures of this thing just like sitting out there. Its only purpose was to be there, to be this thing that you would go and look at, and people would go up to the platform. And I've, it was relatively um, un, it, the, the area wasn't really built up at that time, so you know you could actually get quite a good view apparently of the surrounding countryside. But that's what it was. Uh, and um, there's a lot of these kinds of things, not just um, sort of in inverted commas, meaningless, mm. you know, iconic buildings uh, that are built purely to, to prop up, for instance, uh, public transport. So I immediately think of Faulkner Cemetery, which is obviously not a meaningless thing, but was built purely because they needed a reason to have people travel to Faulkner. Not a very nice reason, I suppose, but that's what it was, that's what it was 
put there for. So those those kinds of things that um, that are kind of uh, that become destinations in in themselves. It's uh, no, it's a it's an amazing field of uh, of investigation. But I mean, yeah, the idea of an icon. But then then you think, okay, well, the Eiffel Tower was was a was a, a, is a meaningless thing, but of course it, it totally worked. So you can see why a lot of people would uh, would want to try and um, replicate, replicate it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for coming in again. We're heading back to the 1880s this morning and a very important part of our history. At this time, the Corrindurk Aboriginal Settlement in the Hillsville region ran a protest campaign to save their self-sufficient community from white development. And their campaign was largely successful and resulted in a parliamentary inquiry in 1881 and a Original extracts from that original inquiry were adapted as a play called Corrindurk, We Will Show the Country. And uh, this play has enjoyed a long life and has been restaged many times around Australia. And it's on again, this time as a one-off performance on country at Corrindurk up near Hillsville. And we're joined this morning by award-winning actor Uncle Jack Charles, who plays the legendary Wurundjeri leader William Barak in the performance and um, has performed this before as well. And it's um, really great to have you back. Back on Triple R. Back, back to it. Good to be back here in Triple R. Thank you very much. And um, we, we should. There's lots to talk to you about this morning. Um, but maybe we should talk about this special Corridor. performance on on um, yes. on country. Yes. Um, it's minutes of evidence project. You know, uh, if you ever wanted to find out your early history, you know, access parliamentary library, letters written in the early days of settlement in regards to Aboriginals, written by Aboriginals, written by local settlers, squatters, and etc. There's tons of information that can be gleaned from that. So Corrindirk is called the Minutes of Evidence Project. Uh, there were four... Uh, when you wrote letters to Parliament, even in the late 1700s, whether you were black or white, Parliament has to act on those letters. And so, such were the complaints by my great-greats, William Brack and all that mob from Corrindirk, was that they had a series of royal commissions and uh, into the management and etc. We were complaining about the uh, bad treatment, uh, bad management and the Aboriginal Protection Board, the squatters and etc. Uh, after having, you know, uh, uh, you know, developed a successful farm a successful farming valley, you know, growing produce that we were taking into Hillsville, into early Hillsville and selling produce in there. And um, uh, we noticed that the surrounding farms were growing hops for the Melbourne Brewery. So William Brack said, well, we'll grow hops for the Melbourne Brewery. And they won first prize with their, t- with their hops uh, at the Royal Melbourne Show in 1980. So, of course, the squatters and etc. Were, were lining the top of the valley, eyeing down on this valley lecherously and enviously, doing all manner of things, trying to pull down the fences, destroy the crops and keep on move, doing things to move the people off their own land, make it look as though they couldn't manage the station. So we complained about that. And... Uh, uh, and it took three years for the court to... Uh, the, uh, and this was the first, too. 
hear this story, you know, is an example of uh, of what can come about by just merely writing a letter to Parliament that's uh, had a you know a big outcome. The blackfellas, my great greats, were uh, complaining to the point that they had a series of royal commissions, the first of its kind in 1800s, the first of its kind in Australia, and it had to deal with the blackfellas. So this is a wonderful you know introduction to Victorians. This story, Corin Dirk, uh, it's going to be bled into the Victorian schools curriculum this year. Victorian Education Department is setting the bar. You know, we're the first state to be bleeding on the school's curriculum a particularly momentous, uh, you know, early Victorian Aboriginal history, significant history, uh, onto, their, onto their schools for study to absorb and learn from and that, because many of the policies that developed from the Corrindirk days uh, affect us today, and particularly the uh, Aboriginal Half-Caste Act. Because they had a win in 1884, it was permanently gazetted, yes, as their land. Queen Victoria had given a large plot of land to William Barak for the loss of Melbourne, you know. And, uh, and, and um, so, and, you know, this was immediately following the, the, uh, the policy of eradication policy came the protection policy. And that. So, uh, so my my great great saw the coming of the white people, and that saw uh, saw the, the desecration of uh, of their sites and moving away, not allowed to be on country because they were building the cities, having gold mines up in Jajavaran country at Ballarat and etc. So they were shunted to the five surrounding stations. Corrandert was the most successful of all these farms at that time. And the result of that act in in 1886 was that, that Corrindirk couldn't, couldn't function as it was, as this real agricultural hub that was so successful yeah. and, and profitable for the people who were, who were there was, at the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and they were being educated. People, well, they were writing letters to Parliament, of course, they were educated, you know. So, um, and it's a great story. You know, I'd like to see it filmed down the track, you know. Uh, and I, I reckon it's a, it's a great, you know, it it it, it has all the all, all all the things that a good movie, a Victorian. Yeah you know, Aboriginal movie could make here, you know. Well, I was thinking that, um, I mean, the first time that I heard this story was when it was turned in, when turned into this verbatim yeah. theatre performance. This is when I first heard it. And yeah. I wonder if that, um, by doing that, um, Giordano, Nani and uh, Andrea James have really brought this to oh, our attention. Oh, sheer, sheer brilliance uh, for us to exactly say the exact words that were given in evidence transcribed and entered into the parliamentary library. So all the actors say those exact words. You know, La Mama being at the helm of many uh, projects that have uh, impacted, uh, um, you know, the theatrical history and that, you know, here in Melbourne um, developed this first and that through, through near, you know, through Giordano and etc. and the Melbourne University and that. Uh, what a wonderful thing for me, the tail end uh, 
not the tail end, but then knowing my dotage in the theatre, that I should be returning to La Mama on a significant production like Corin Dirk. And what's it going to, to be like for you to perform that on country? Because it's kind of oh, uh, that's a big, number you know, of seasons. I do, you know, every time I go up there, I do have this incredible large sense of piss-offedness uh, going on to country because, you know, my great-great-grandfather is buried up there in an unmarked grave. And that, you know, really pisses me off. And he's one of those ones that were shot off station. If you were off station, you know, you were still fair game for the Sunday after church uh, killing spree. And that, you know, this has this happened, you know, right around the country. But it started down here in Victoria, those, those kind of behaviours, you know, early settler behaviour. But, uh, yes, uh, this is... Uh, uh, they... they uh, uh, William Brack is a wonderful man, you know. He, uh, I don't know his involvement with the early days of uh, quelling the wild blacks by using, you know, developing the Victorian Native Police Force. He may have had a hand in that, I'm not certain, but word gets to me when we are performing this by other groups, tribal groups, that you know William Brack was part of that mob that helped eradicate our mob, the Gurindji mob, no, uh, Gujamara mob would say that to me, and that, mm. you know, so, well, everybody's got a story. And so far, this is one of the most significant stories here in Victoria that we could start to, 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 to enter into a school's curriculum to start the journey of learning. We, you know, have been, you know, have noticed that languages right around Australia are being taught in schools now. It behooves schools to have languages because they've got Aboriginal students in their schools and that. And uh, we took this, Corinderk, this particular, the La Mama production, there are two productions, you know, there's the one that hard followed. Uh, Rachel directed this one originally, Rachel Mazza, mm. but she's the CEO of Vilbidgery Theatre, so she's developed uh, one of those quick hit and one show performances of six actors only. Again, I get to play William Barak, but it's a different kind of show. It's to hit and run for schools and into prisons. Mm. Or, or so it's 80 minutes, the, the full um, production, isn't it? But I wonder, um, what's the language like for people that haven't seen it yet? Because it's been playing at different times for the last sort of five, five, yeah, yeah, six yeah. years. Yeah. Five years. Um, what's the language like in, in the performance, in the play? Uh, in, uh, in, in the uh, the Mama production, the language of the times, the uh, 1700s, 1800s and that, you know. Um, in the uh, Mama, in Ilbidri production, I do it. Uh, I do it in lingo. I do the, his petition in the Wurundjeri language, and that because remembering that I've only found my roots at sixty-seven, and that you know. Uh, uh, so uh, when uh, Varsity was being finished, you know, uh, well, when Varsity had premiered, and that you know, uh, Rachel Major wanted to, to connect me to do Varsity the stage show. And, uh, and I thought, oh, uh, all right, okay. So um, uh, I realised that having jumped off the methadone, I had this clarity of mind that I could co-write a production and call it Jack Charles versus The Crown, following on from Varsity. So there's a lot of things happening in my life. I'm, uh, you know, and I'm, uh, 
you know, they're calling me Jack Bums on seat, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> well, know. because you've just um, <laughs> just performed at a run of sold-out shows in Canada. Oh, yes, I was standing ovations. I was really wrapped. I got stoned a little bit when I had to smoke the peace pipe with them. It was only so. <laughs> but still, I, you know, I was a bit woozy in that, you know. They give me some of this beer root to chew, too. Well, that got me stuff. <laughs> I did the first opening night on that, and it was just great, you know. Well, tell, I mean, tell us, where did, where did you um, perform in, in Canada? What city we did, did you... Uh, we did uh, on t- uh, Ottawa first, five days over there, five performances. Freezing snow and minus degrees and all that kind of stuff, you know. And you wouldn't believe it, you know. A taxi incident happened over there on the opening night. I was refused a taxi. Well, you, you know, I looked tired after the opening night and the drinks, and so they called me a taxi to wait at backstage, you know, stage door there. And the taxi took one look and he drove on. And I, as I do over here in Australia, scream blue murder and the boys and the band and crew, you know, get upset. So, but the difference here, then, you know, the way I was treated here, or any Aboriginal is treated here, by the CEOs of taxi delivery services, is that their taxi delivery service CEO came along to the show, bought tickets for that night, the second night, and apologised profusely backstage mm. to me, and then said, Jack, it's never happened before. Right, so we're going to have a hire car for you every night. Just <laughs> it's a backstage. That's the big difference. And you know, I don't know if you mob know, but I am intending to uh, uh, give the taxi industry here in Melbourne, the Victoria, a shake-up. Somebody, you need a bastard like me to start, uh, you know, shaking this uh, notion of, 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 of uh, uh, racially profiling us. Uh, refusing to uh, pick up all Aboriginals and that. Therein, again, is, is the lesson here that they've not been taught who we are. You know, this government and successive governments since the Vietnamese times have, you know, wiped away, you know, the, any sense of le- getting people to, uh, well, I hear you get welcome to country, the new immigrants and that, but I think that's haphazard. Uh, You know, I want the people that come into my country, you know, to know who we are and upon whose land they're coming to. And that's the missing element, you know. You know, each state will eventually be telling their own schools, their own, you know, states' stories on their own schools' curriculum. They're all peculiar to that state and that. So, you know, Australia will go through its truth and reconciliation commissions, if you will, by, by uh, you know, undertaking the, to study uh, Corinduk, the first process of it. So, of I mean, that, that speaking there, because, I mean, I, I know you've been applauded by, by me and many others for taking a stand when you've been really in, in, insulted and profiled, as you say, um, in in Melbourne, yeah. um, with, and Sydney, with, and, and Sydney as well, with uh, with taxi drivers. But now Ottawa, wow. And uh, well, and that difference you say in in what happened in in Ottawa. I wonder. Um, I mean, what was it like performing in in Canada, which has really had a lot of the same um, issues 
uh, around violent and um, colonisation and all these kinds of, of issues that, that we are still coming to terms with in, in Australia. What was it like to perform there? Oh, it, it was absolutely wonderful because we, you know, we go through the motions of the, being welcome to country. We go to the local, they invite us to the local community centres and that many of them are, are built on some of the dreaming that I have in developing, you know, I have a long-term, de- you know, dreaming that I could develop an in Dubai workshop in Collingwood Fitzroy. Well, I saw three of them, you know, in each city, one in each city, you know, how, the, how they're coping. They're, you know, they're funded, their community centres are funded and that. And uh, they're also, you know, tourists are going through buying stuff too. But... Um, uh, they, they tell me, you know, that my story is so reflected on their stories. Uh, it's a mirror image, they say. You know, they were, their, their stolen people were called residential schoolies. And so I added in this, uh, into, into the mix and that, you know. So, I mean, uh, they did get it, you know, totally got it. And I did some community, you know, uh, events too meeting with the locals, the junkies and things like this. So if I go to Toronto, it's been promised that I'll, I'll be able to enter one of the large jails over there in Toronto. See, so it's always a dreaming of mine. If I'm touring, I'd like to go into the jails and that, you know. It's only ever happened once uh, here in Australia, over in the West, in one of the most racist nations. 2012, I was doing Jack Charles down at, uh, down at Albany, you know, and the governor rang and he says, oh, Jack, you've got a couple of days off, I hear. Can you come in and speak to my boys? I said, I'd love to. You know, so I went in there. They had their band set up and the oval and all that, you know, and the pavilion. And then I was there, actually, to, you know, be unleashed in a prison setting. <laughs> Me, the mad... You know. But you've tried to um, yes, provide been trying that for sort a long of, time. yeah, mentoring mm. and, yes, and, and yes. all just... It worked so well because I was there to remind them that, uh, you know, that uh, remember the system needs you to be locked up. The system needs you to be drogged up. The system, fellas, needs you to be iced up, you know, fucked up, locked up, so that you could never, ever get a sense of self, you know, self-awareness. Fortunately, you know, and uh, uh, reclaim that which you've lost. So you've been kept grogged up. Homeless and in this predicament now, you know, it's become, you know, so uh, that was, it, it worked so well that it took the governor half an hour to prize me from the fellow's clutches. So that tells me that, you know, you need somebody like me to go into prisons. There's very few of us that have a passion to return to prisons because the doors have been firmly cut closed here in Victoria, I've had to accept all the things that now are thrown at me on the stages in television, little cameo roles written into them. In well, we saw you in black comedy yeah, on yeah, yeah. Wednesday night. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Rake and uh, also Wolf Creek and that beautiful little role in Wolf Creek with uh, with uh, Lucy Fry, who I want to a lady, the demon slayer. John Jarrett and that but yes a great experience and that everybody wants to add me in pan even you know over in the over in mm. Warner Brothers uh, little these cameo roles uh, Red Simons I think yeah, said it great you know 
particularly, he said, he says, oh, Jack, you know, everybody knows nowadays that you're performing on stage or in front of a camera with no poo in your system. So they don't want to get you before you cart it. <laughs> well, I wonder, I mean, you've also been honoured as um, Senior Australia of, Australian of the Year 2016 for Victoria. Australia of the year. And you're that's a national finalist. Yeah, well, I, I, I gather that even people that I've robbed from the wealthy communities voted for me. CIU, retired CIU inspectors have voted for me. Many a junkie that's struggling with their addiction and their lives have voted for me or, you know, rooting for me in that, you know. So, uh, you know, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I, I like playing the definitive walking, talking role model. It suits me perfectly. Well, what do you do when you're a senior Australian of, the, of Victorian of the Year? I, do you uh, have, like, a role uh, I do. Year, I or? do as I do every day okay. if I'm in city, you know, and I'm not doing any. I ride my electric e-bike e into... Uh, my community at Extreme Seniors pace 32 kilometres an hour along the bike lane, shared footpaths. <laughs> and I visit, <laughs> me. <laughs> I visit my constituents. I, I'm a nosy parker. I, I, you know, I, I visit the health service every day. and that. So no, I have that sense. It's been taking me a long time to be taken seriously by the system as a, as a partner in the humanities, perhaps, I thought as soon as I got this award, it would be a pathway towards prison. And I broached this with uh, uh, the, the Premier, uh, uh, Daniel Andrews, and Julian McMahon. Uh, so on that night, I was oh, wow, that's really, you know, so I was really full of it. And then you know, I only to be dashed and that, like, with this taxi incident outside the Hilton. And that, and yeah. The next day, I had to fly over to... Adelaide to do a keynote address for Jobs Australia. And again, I come back off the plane to the airport and directed by the cab uh, director and that, you know. And because I was wearing my brand-new Specsaver glasses from Northcote Plaza there, I, uh, I, I saw the driver actually turn around on the big, huge Indian Hindu extraction. And, that he took. and I saw, because of my eye, you know, new eyesight, I saw the whites of his eyes, turned around and with a squeal of tyres, darted off and joined the taxi rack around at Qantas and that. So these two incidences allows me to say, well, look, Barley Charlie, it needs to be addressed once and for all. And this you, again, you need a bastard like me to, to pull people together around a conference table. Yeah. You know, the taxi industry, their representatives and all that kind of stuff, the police. I want to know the full story about the taxi industry because I know it's one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. So I'm out to protect them, but also to educate them. So the idea down the track is that we're going to be bleeding into their schools training curriculums indigenous cross-cultural awareness and that it's a way to go you know we're catching up because in the days when the vietnamese were here they were given a good talking to by people that had settled here post-war greeks croatian yugoslavs italians and that and uh, uh, germans and that and also uh, uh, chinese and that but they're also spoken to by an aboriginal here in victoria and melbourne <coughs> So sorry, Joe, I don't mean to interrupt, but all these kind of incidents and, and instances of um, of racism, I guess, is no other word for it, that yeah. you're, you're describing are kind of 
in some way reflected in, in Corrindirk itself with the type of um, systematic, uh, I guess, disadvantage that's imposed on the people there to ensure that, that they can't really thrive in the patch of land that they have. And I wonder, I mean, we've spoken on this show um, over, over the past few years about Corrindirk and a kind of revival that's happening there and, and reconnection. What, what sort of a place is it today? Um, uh, well, we've got Warra College there, the girls' college there. Uh, that's run, you know, that's, that seems to be funded well. The, the, the Wandon family are just beginning to realise that, that, uh, that land's potential. And so we're at the beginning with this open-air concert, you know, concert, you know this uh, performance of Corinder, a one-off, just to, you know... And, and each year they do have walks from Hillsville, and I've been on one of them or from Hillsville to Corrindirk and, and we have, uh, you know, festivals there and that could your Edward play or somebody like that, you know. So that's, that, you know, we want to put Corrindirk back on the map. You know, so. We're out of time. All right. And you are with the grapevine, Collier and Dylan, with you just for the next half an hour or so. And um, very wonderful to welcome Sally Rippon back to the airways. She joins us um, monthly and uh, to speak all things children's literature. And um, every month, uh, Sally brings in somebody that um, has, you know, really inspired her practice and um, to come and speak about theirs. And uh, it's good to see you again, Sally. It's great to be back. I'm particularly excited about today's guest. Well, Anne James is joining us. And Anne's illustrated over 60 books for children some of which she's also written and she's won many awards for her work and she's also a great community builder um, and runs the books illustrated showroom um, uh, together with another illustrator and it's really great to have you in Anne and congratulations on your um, Order of Australia medal which you've um, picked up this year um, for all your work with um, well in the community of illustrators. Thanks Talia. Thanks. And if that's an important person in the community. She's certainly integral in me starting out as an illustrator. I remember as a young illustrator in my early 20s taking my folio to their um, gallery at uh, Gasworks at the original Books Illustrated place and, and giving me feedback on the spot and just being really inspired and, and we often talk about how the children's book illustration community is such a, a strong community. There is this feeling that once you're established you reach your hand out and help other people up and I'd say it's certainly and, and James and Anne Haddon have been really integral in, in making that community a really vibrant place. So I'm Particularly excited to have you on the show, oh, and Ellie. That's <laughs> lovely. And you're—I mean—you won the award for your for your advocacy among other things. And I wonder what what advocating for um, children's illustration involves. What what have you been doing? Just lots of enthusiasm, I think. I—I <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think we consciously set ourselves as advocators, but um, we just love picture books in particular so much, and hadn't was a teacher librarian and um, I'd, we'd been together for quite a while and both had a real love of picture books and thought wouldn't it be great to show people the artwork behind the picture books so we dreamt up this project called Books Illustrated. We had no idea it would still be going. It started in 1988 and um, it's still going pretty strong now. But it was just that love of illustration and I was an illustrator and knew what went into it I knew just perhaps two or three illustrators who I rang and said, how about if we set up a gallery, how would you feel? And that was Terry Denton and Liz Honey and Ron Brooks and they all said, yeah, go for it. So we did. We just sort of very naively started um, this project that's just grown. 
And you're also quite a, a strong advocate within, say, for example, the Australian Society of Authors that, um, that often illustrators, they can be seen as secondary to the authors in a picture book. So you've always made sure that these people will receive the same rights, that the royalties are um, shared out evenly. Um, so in that way, you are an advocate and mm-hmm. that you see that illustrators often can be the ones working behind the scenes. And it's a massive amount of work that goes into illustrating a picture book. What do you think of as your role as an illustrator um, when you receive a text, somebody else's work? and then where does the job start from there? Well, first of all, I have to really see that this uh, manuscript is something that will suit me because people will send you um, texts that are very similar to ones you've already done and I don't like reinventing the wheel and um, so that's my first thing and then it's about interpretation and I think people don't realise that that's what an illustrator is, very like an actor where you have to visualise the characters, the setting and invent just everything from the shoes to the to the big picture you know and um, so you have to love and feel connected to the flavour of the story I um, I think that editors will match up people who've got similar senses of humour but certainly a real feeling and empathy that they can share um, otherwise you're mismatched and it just falls flat. And how does that collaboration work when you're working with a writer? I mean is it, is it often the case that they'll immediately take up what, you're, um, what you put together and see it as, a, as a, a good reflection of the story they've written or can it be kind of a negotiation I think I think people often think of us working in tandem, author and illustrator unless you're in the same skin and you are the author and the illustrator, you, um, you generally work with an editor and the editor and the author have worked together to polish the text and then they pass the baton on to um, the illustrator. So uh, because I'm a bit cheeky and I know quite a lot of my authors, if I get uh, a big itchy question in my head, I'll just go straight to the author. But on the other hand, if I feel I've got an idea that the author might not be so mad about, I'll go to the editor. <laughs> <laughs> they provide the buffer zone. Yeah, and it's a long process. You know, you do a lot of roughs. Um, character is where I begin because I have to feel inside the skin of the main characters. Um, and so I will show the editor at the publishing house and they will probably show their team. I don't really know who's seen what. I always assume they'll show the author and I hope they do. But um, I just go ahead and work uh, to get to a point where I've got fairly final roughs um, and then once everybody's seen them, the marketing people even might come in on board and they can really throw spanners all over the place. Um, <laughs> then, I, then I will get the go-ahead to do the finished artwork and that's like the downhill swoop. I, um, I remember I worked on a, on a picture book about camels where I went to Alice and smelt and touched and loved camels, even ate camel. Um, <laughs> but it, it took me two years to be able to draw camels the way I, I draw people, you know, sort of... I mean, not literally, but um, to get to know them well enough that I could imbue them with character and expression and body language. Uh, Two years. And then the finished artwork took me 18 days. So that's that's how it works often. Might be a sort of it's 
yeah, that's how it works. And you have a very playful approach to illustration, which I think is reflected in all your work. You like to use a lot of different techniques and styles. And and I've noticed that sometimes, having seen some of your earlier uh, roughs, that you'll use different mediums until you get just the right one. Like I think of the one about the fish in the goldfish bowl who imagine that they're facing down a big ship and you, you taught yourself Chinese brush painting to, to give that kind of swishy brush stroke that you wanted in particular for that work. And you would recognise that, <laughs> Um Yeah, I actually, because I was an art teacher, um, I trained as a secondary art teacher and that was really a fine art course. And I, I think a lot of illustrators have got a background in art of some sort. You know, some might have been ceramicists. Terry Denton was an architect. You know, we all come to it with a language that we can work with. And as an artist, I love working with different materials because I've got lots of things to say and I like to have lots of tools to say them with and um, my mum was an artist so we always had lots of stuff around the house that I was encouraged to play with. My dad built things, built our house and built the furniture and so I saw the way things worked. I saw process around me all the time and um, every time I get a manuscript it's, it's not my own. You know, I've only illustrated about four books that I've written so I have to work out what is what is the language for this book, what's the visual texture and colour and flavour of the of the story. And um, and I did learn Chinese, I did sumio painting actually, years and years ago with my mum. And uh, yeah, so you have lots of tricks up your sleeve. How much do we know about that sort of you know, the visual literacy of of children, how they how they learn through the pictures, because I, you know, with picture books, there's often both, not always, but you know, text and and um, pictures. And I know more and more we're a very visual culture. I think young people are, are, are very much working with photographs and 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 that sort of thing, film all the time now. And I wonder how much we know about how how the learning happens there with reading. Yeah, and I'm pictures. sure I'm sure there's real academic studies in all of that. Well, from <laughs> your point of view, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think um, kids right from the moment you pop out um, all your senses are so tuned in to the world That's and you're learning at 500 miles an hour so I've, I know that when you present kids with anything they take it all in as an adult we just scoot across the stuff we think we already know so every tree might seem to look the same but if like when I was a child I was drawing a tree and my mum said I think I'll get my friend Jenny to take you around to get to know trees and Jenny was an old artist that lived over the road and she took me around and got me looking at first of all try and find a few different trees and that was quite easy and then look at the leaves on those trees and they were all different on every tree as well as from one another so I think children are looking all the time they're very curious and I'm aware that with a picture book it's a really a totally integrated sensory experience somebody's usually reading it to you you might be sitting on their lap um, or you might be sitting on the sand. You know, you've got different things happening around you. You're listening to it and you're looking and the text is telling you one thing and you're, the images are telling you another. There are picture books that are as boring as anything if, if the images and the text are both literally echoing each other. So most of us illustrate it between the lines or around the corners and that makes a full experience and kids are very used to doing that um, there are people like Lee Hobbs who illustrates one thing and and writes another you know he says the writing is his adult voice saying um, Mr Chicken was very comfortable and then you look at the picture of Mr Chicken standing up on top of Trafalgar Square or something and 
so we play. Mm. So that's such a perfect segue because if you haven't seen the front page of The Age this morning, can you announce you, you were part of the founding um, board of the Australian Children's Laureate and that has been announced this morning. So could you officially announce who our Children's Laureate is and what that involves to oh, the Children's I'd be, Laureate? I'd be very <laughs> pleased to. Um, our new Children's Laureate is Lee Hobbs. Um, Lee Hobbs as most people will know, is an author-illustrator of very famous books like Old Tom and Mr Chicken and Horrible Harriet, very dear to all our hearts if you know them. Um, But Lee is also a teacher, has been a teacher for over 30 years. Um, He's a wonderful advocate for his peers and because he spends a lot of time in schools um, as a visiting artist and author, um, he's very aware of, of how schools work and how kids work and is one of his key uh, passions is to inform people that he thinks there should be a teacher library in every school and a library in every school, no matter how small or large. And um, so he comes to the laureateship with that as one of his key things. The laureate is chosen from people who are really at the peak of their profession. Um, Their peers respect them, the industry knows them and respects them and they have a certain power, I guess, to um, inform the general public about children's literature and the importance of reading and also to promote Australian literature Um, A lot of people wouldn't be aware that the favourite books that they have in their house and school are actually written and illustrated by Australian creators. So all in all, we've got two wonderful years ahead where he's got a program where every state library and territory library is going to be involved um, as sort of key um, parts to his program. So is that a, does the laureates kind of come up with that program themselves ordinarily and they kind of have a mandate to sort of see that through? Is that how it works? Well, we invite the laureate. Um, we have a board, which is a whole group of uh, children's literature industry specialists from all different fields. Um, The laureate is chosen after lots of um, research and thought and once they're chosen this year, um, well last year actually, we decided we wanted a six month lead up so we have a program manager who's worked with Lee over this six months in a very secretive way um, to develop some sort of project that will suit him. You know, he has to be passionate about it, not feel like he's going to work on something that isn't him and um, this is what Lee wants to do and actually the way he's going to work with the partners will be quite exciting and we don't even know what that's going to be like yet and uh, he'll be going into remote areas, he'll be going to overseas to participate in the um, International Laureate Program. And I mean, the Laureate in Australia is relatively new. We've had three to date and two of them had it in the same period. So Alison Lester and, and Brewery Monty Pryor, um, Pryor kicked it off and then Jackie French has been the, is, is the outgoing Laureate. And But it has existed elsewhere for a lot longer, hasn't it? This kind of concept of, a, of someone that reaches out and, and promotes sort of children's literature in True. his way. Yep. We were inspired by the UK primarily. Um, America has a reading ambassador and both the UK and America started their laureates late in the 1900s, uh, wow. which sounds like a long time ago. <laughs> Quentin Blake was the first laureate um, for the UK and um, he's my hero of heroes so I, I was very interested in what it was about. Um, the 
the board of ACLA, which is the managers of the Laureate Program in Australia, um, got together to really look at what we could do in Australia. We weren't wanting to copy what they were doing there. In fact, it, it, in every country now, there's around about eight countries with laureates and we get together in Italy every second year to talk about what everybody's doing. But it's different everywhere. Like the Welsh last year when we met, the, that there were two Welsh laureates. Um, they were both poets. One was a slam poet. And they were just so inspiring. You know, you could imagine how kids and this is disengaged youth they were working with, more than little kids. Um, the, the Swedes have a more academic approach and they're really looking at uh, the sort of thing you were talking about, about visual literacy and other literacies and how they impact on having kids love to read and how do you get adults to um, foster that love. But um, in Australia, when we first decided on our, our long list of people, we got it down to two in the end and we just could not choose between Bury and Alison. So we thought, we're Australian, let's do, let's do both. <laughs> and in fact, it made it really very uh, complex for us to um, work with, but what a great splash. Yeah, and I mean, they're located in different parts of the country and they, they have um, both been so active for so long haven't they um, mm. around what they do and I, th I think that's I wonder if that's a big part of who you choose um, to be a laureate that they have that um, love of engaging and going out there and, and, and being in public because I imagine that a lot of illustrators and, and, and writers for that matter yeah. don't don't love that. No you're quite right Kelly. We that's one of the criteria that people have to be comfortable with being media savvy, as we put it, which um, if you said it to Lee six months ago, you have to be media savvy, you probably would have said, no, thank you very much. But <laughs> so you're putting through a crash course. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, like, yeah. a crash course this weekend. Well, okay. so, yeah, well, it's, so that is one thing, but also, as you say, this um, rapport with peers and also with kids um, is hugely important. But um, I think the fact that the children's literature community, author and illustrator-wise, are so connected and collegiate um, makes that work really well for us because we're all quite happy. I would think there wouldn't be anybody unhappy about Lee being their spokesperson. He's pretty edgy and wild and fun and all of those things, as well as being a very empathetic and clever fella. Well, it's a very exciting couple of years to come. Or well, hopefully, we can get him on, in on this show. We've had yeah. him on Triple R before, and he's um, good fun. Didn't he do the um, the ceramic um, kind of? Um, it's in the gallery of, of, the, teapot. of the teapot, the industry station. station. That's what he's. Yep. Yeah, that's that's quite impressive. That work as yeah. well. Oh, very good. Speaking about the new um, children's laureate uh, uh, and part of that selection panel for Lee Hobbs, who's going to um, be doing that advocacy role for the next couple of years. But what, what's your next project? And what are you what are you working on? My next project is a big move. <laughs> In fact, I have got um, I've got two picture books on the go, but um, books illustrated, and Anne and I are moving to another spot. So in the next. I can't even try and think about how busy our lives are going to be for the next couple of months. But um, yeah, the picture book thing is something I really love and I never have enough time to do my illustration work, let alone write as well, which I'd really like to be doing. But um, everything informs your work, doesn't it, Sally? So it doesn't matter what you're doing, really, it, um, it all informs my work. 
And with Books Illustrated, you do quite a lot of curating of exhibitions, and there's a few exhibitions that are touring at the moment that people can find out about if they look at the website. Yeah, yeah we've got uh, probably about six exhibitions that travel, and one of them is one of Sean Tan's From Book to Film, and that's the last thing... Um, that he won the Oscar for. Uh, that is a whole exhibition of the original artwork for the book and for the making of the film. Very different experiences doing a book and, and creating an animation and he had a very small team of about four of them working on that. So that's a very interesting exhibition that's travelling around. Um, another one of Alison Lester's Are We There Yet? which most people would probably have in their home libraries, that wonderful picture book. We launched that in 2004 and that continually travels. Um, we have an exhibition of Anzac picture books, which of course is pretty current and um, contemporary subject for the next few years. And uh, that that's great and that, um, that's been around. Um, and, and a couple of mine, I suppose, there are too. Yeah. And this Saturday... Um People might not know yet, but there's a, a kids' big book spectacular on at the State Library that you're involved in, um, plus our laureate, Lee Hobbs and Carly Dunstan. And you were telling me a little bit about the workshop that you're preparing for this weekend, which sounds crazy. <laughs> it does sound pretty crazy. Uh, I think when you're working with the State Library of Victoria, they assume that you're going to have gigantic audiences, and you do. And uh, I've been told that I've got 100 kids that I'm... I was originally 150, but I think I must have raised my eyebrows a little bit high. So 100 kids doing a hands-on workshop and... Um, <laughs> should be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep saying to them, we have got a few little helpers, hopefully, but um, it should be really fun. So you were saying it's free, but people need to book for that. Yeah, yeah, and Lee will be doing a workshop and Kylie Dunstan, so I'm not sure... I know that Lee can handle two and a half thousand people at once <laughs> at the Sydney Writers Festival um, and Kylie I'm not sure but presumably she's probably got a hundred She often works well. in collage Yeah so there'll be a lot of paper thing. around yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's a very busy um, sort of day down there isn't it the State Library I've been a few times so if you've got if you've got kids that don't like big crowds maybe go early or yeah. something or find a little corner that you can hang out because it can be pretty overwhelmingly exciting yeah, uh, it's as well um, <laughs> Yeah it's this Saturday and it's I think you have to book, it's free, but um, it's the workshops anyway you need to book, but there's mm. other activities that you don't have to book for. And that's mm. part of this um, Laureate Week, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, because yep. the State Library of Victoria is the first of our partners to mm. be hosting Lee, and we've all been finding it terribly difficult to keep it secret that even though Lee is a major part of this festival, we weren't allowed to say that he was the Laureate <laughs> until today. <laughs> and now it's all booked out, no. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming in. It's really great to have you on, on Triple R and and um, and James and um, yeah lots of uh, you, you have so many of her books at home and um, a wonderful advocate for illustrators and, and children's literature in Australia and uh, Sally Rippin joins us once a month and, and brings in um, an illustrator or children's book writer and we look forward to seeing you next month Sally great thanks and thank um, you this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.